Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Watford surprise nobody. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host Dan Tracy and in the next 60 minutes we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's been another incredible week of football and this week it's two up top. That means leading the line and we're in the captain's armband is Matthew. So Matthew, how have you been since we last spoke? Yeah, you know, I've been, I've been pretty good. Um... Keeping up with uh, keeping up with Fulham this side of the pond for the last two two weeks or so before I moved back. Uh, yeah, still fascinated the fact that we can still manage to squeak squeak out results even without our best two players, which is a good sign of uh, from what you want for a team challenging the uh, challenging for honor. So yeah, can't really complain on that end. I'm glad to hear you're also joined by the return of Palace fan Max. Max, how have you been this past fortnight? Yeah, yeah, much better. Thanks. I think I'm now fully recovered uh, from COVID. So yeah, happy to be back. Glad to hear. Unfortunately, Palace didn't do the business at the weekend, but we're going to digest that and a lot more in the next 60 minutes. So before we do, let's do the social media bits. I will be talking into the abyss once more. First, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at Dan Tracy, 1983. Also, the podcast has its own account, which is at Real Football Pod. And if you want to become a shareholder, all you need to do is follow and join our very elite members club. Talking of clubs, I'm delighted to announce we're now part of the UK's first ever sports podcast network, that being Sports Social. So check out the URL and all the links posted throughout the week on the Real Football Pod account. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. If you use that platform, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like us, leave a review so we move up the league table. Also, I need to mention my content partner, that being betting.com. For all the tips and predictions you'll ever need, visit that website. And the easiest way to find all the links is by going to linktree slash realfootballcast, put a dot between the R and the E, and then you get 10 podcast platforms to choose from. It's never been easier to listen to this show. Right, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Well, there's a number of talking points to talk about this week, thankfully. However, we've got to go back to Vicarage Road because, yes... To the surprise of absolutely nobody, Watford have sacked another manager. Now, Matthew, 
we spoke about Ranieri and we kind of asked the question of would he be in charge by the end of the season. I think we come to the conclusion, no, but I don't think anyone had in mind a January sacking. Did you? No, I, I certainly don't think. As you said, we all knew that this was not going to last the season. Even if he was doing well, we all thought that this is something that you know that couldn't last the, that couldn't last the season. So it was it was surprising, yet at the same time not surprising. I think it's only the timing really that's that's the that's the querying thing because you know whilst Watford aren't exactly in the greatest run of form right now, then and they are in a relegation battle as it were. You'd still think of the teams that are in and around them. You still think they do have a decent chance of getting themselves out of it, especially with Newcastle not being particularly great. Burnley, I mean, whilst they do have the games in hand, they're still well behind when it comes to the points. So it wasn't like a guarantee that what but we're going to go down sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it's the January, it's the January aspect that is the is the surprising part of it. As I say though, Max, it doesn't really surprise you, does it? It almost gets gets to the point where you just roll your eyes now, like, oh, okay, another Watford manager's gone. Why are Watford so trigger happy? You know, what are they gaining from this short-term cycle, which they always put their managers in? Because yes, they're kind of, I guess, gambling on another new manager bounce, but they are just the laughing stock of the Premier League. Like you can't go through three managers on average per season in this division, can you? Well, I mean, they're they're trying their best to, to do it, aren't they? Um, I know uh, it's it's a bit silly. I mean. I knew kind of Ranieri was somewhat under pressure because as Watford manager, you kind of always are. And obviously that, that you know, really comprehensive defeat against Norwich, who might well finish bottom this season, um, you know, direct relegation rival obviously wasn't great. And they felt like it needed a, a change after that. But yeah, I mean, it's just a bit of a, it's just a bit of a, a circus there, you know, and, and the club's becoming a bit of a laughing stock. And he, I, yeah, I think England haven't won a test cricket match since Ranieri was appointed. Um, and, you know, England haven't been doing great, but <laughs> that shows you just how kind of short of a, a period it is. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, Watford obviously feel that um, by doing that and by, by sacking managers so readily and so swiftly that they can, um, that they have a sustainable model. But, I mean, they did that last time and got relegated. So, I can't see where, you know, what kind of model that they're, they're looking at as ha- having had any success in the past, because it hasn't, you know, they got relegated last time. They they sacked Pearson with like three games left and gave it to, to Hayden Mullins, who's like never managed at senior level before. And then obviously they went down. I don't know why they wouldn't have just given it to Pearson until the end of the season. But yeah, it's it's really just silly. And, and I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Watford because of the kind of Palace-Watford semi-rivalry. But I mean, even if I were a complete neutral, I think it's just a bit of a farce the way they the way they're going about things. Oh, it's a massive farce. It's kind of just makes a mockery of football. And Watford fans may say, well, you know, it works to a certain degree, but they are just a laughing stock now. And if you're a manager on the outside who thinks, oh, actually, like Watford jobs available, would you really want it? Because Watford are seemingly moving quickly. They don't muck about in fairness when they sack a manager. There's always someone else in that revolving door. The next name is Roy Hodgson. Now Roy could if you wanted to, pot around in his garden, retirement, semi-retirement, whatever you want to label it. And he's now going to probably throw himself back into the fire, Matthew. Does he need this hassle? No, I, I don't think he does. But it's it's a case... Yeah, it's, it's just, I think it's, I think there's an element with, with all Watford managers when it comes to this, you know. I think everyone sort of understands 
that they are in a, a no-lose situation. As I, was, I think everyone sort of understands how chaotic the club is. So everyone goes in there with minimal, you know, as outsiders, everyone looks at whatever appointment they make as minimal expectations. Oh, we know that if they do well, then they've done well because we know how chaotic it is. And if they don't do well, then I think, well, what can you really expect because of the... the um, Chaos is going on above, going on above them. So you know, was Hodgson, you know, again might be able to get them out of the trouble that they're in. I mean, he, you would go, you could argue when he took over Palace, they were in a worse situation than he than, than what would are right now. So he's got that advantage for him. But again, if it doesn't work out, if you know Norwich go on a resurgent run of Newcastle by Mbappe in January or whatever, and they saw themselves out or whatever situation is with them, then you'd think, if, if even if they saw themselves out and, and Watford do go down, you still think, yeah, well, he did his best. He's taken over in January, you know, not really enough time to buy any of his own players in. So he's got, so I think everyone would sort of give Rodson a pass, as it were, if he does, if he doesn't manage to, if he doesn't manage to keep them up. Well, that's a very good point, Max, in that with a week before the transfer window closes, you now need to install a manager. That manager now has to try and identify players which could be purchased before the end of the window. That's going to be a bit of a squeeze. Would Roy Hodgson be pretty much working with a squad which is alien to him? And with that in mind, would you then sort of think maybe just a five-month contract is the safest thing here? Because what is the real worth of an 18-month contract? Because it's not worth the paper it's written on by the big compensation fee for a sacking. But surely you just kind of do a deal to the end of the season and then see the lie of the land. Yeah, exactly. That would make the most sense for Watford. But Hodgson might say, well, I'm not signing unless you give me two, three years because he knows he's likely to get sacked. And obviously, if he has a two or three year contract, he's going to get three or four times the or five or six times the compensation that he would get if it was just a six month deal until the end of the season. But I mean, yeah, for, for Watford, they should just start giving rolling month to month contracts because there's no point. There just isn't a point giving managed. I think Ranieri had like a two or a two and a half year deal. Well, exactly. That's hugely optimistic, <laughs> given their given their track record. I know it's it's just yeah, it's just a bit ridiculous. I, and I um I follow a couple of like Watford bloggers or podcasters on Twitter, and one of them said something along the lines of, "Oh, you know, if you think you have a good joke about Watford going through managers, you probably don't." And then everyone commented below with about twenty eight fantastic <laughs> quality jokes about how uh how how quickly they get through them. So yeah, it's just. Yes, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a bit silly. But yeah, I mean, I, I can actually see um, Hodgson getting maybe an 18 month to two year deal because he knows himself that he, he might be sacked in five months, but he doesn't want a five month contract because if he goes, that's not very much, um, not very much kind of compensation for his for his work. Yeah, I guess the balance of power in this potential deal is in his favour. As you say, he, he needs, he doesn't need financial protection. I'm sure he's very rich from a, a lengthy career management, but you'd want to stack the odds in your favour and say, look, I'm not here for the five months. I probably will be, but you're going to have to pay me for 18. So a shrewd move there. But in terms of Friday night, Matthew, it wasn't shrewd for Watford because it was that defeat which was the trigger point for the Watford board because at that point, the Hornets are now in the bottom three. So it's just another Watford performance under Ranieri. We laughed in um, our Twitter group about Ranieri's efforts as manager, but that as a kind of... That 90 minutes was a microcosm of how Watford have performed. Yes, there's been a couple of high moments, that being the win over Everton at Goodison Park, where they did smash them. They also beat Man United. But apart from that, it's been a really awful run under their now former manager. Yeah, it has. I think it's 
and, and again, I don't want this to be. I don't want this to be an "I told you so," but it is a case of "I told you so." But you know, any Fulham fan would have told you that this is what would have happened. We saw it exactly with with Claudio Ranieri when he took over from us. Again, it started off great. We got that new manager bounce. I think we beat. I think it was Southampton three two in in his in his very first game. And again, you sort of say, okay, the first couple of weeks you think, right, okay, he sorted the defense out. That's all great. Okay. Um, I think at the time it was, oh, Callum Chambers, he's put him in defensive midfield right at the back. OK, you can see what he's doing there. But over time, it just has proved that, you know, the, the whole lesson thing may just have been a fluke. Maybe it was the players themselves that did it. Maybe it was all uh, Craig Shakespeare behind the scenes. I think it, you know, let this, you know, we you didn't need any more evidence to start with. But let the, let the Watford thing be proof that you know Ranieri is probably done in terms of football. I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm not going to use the term of dinosaur or anything like that because he did. He still had a good, a respectable managerial career. But just in case, I think now the time has certainly moved on from him, from him and his styles, especially you know taking over a Watford team who looked promising when he took them up. He thought they could be a team that were you know roughly mid table with the likes of Dennis and um, stuff proving. Uh, proving a, a nice little player, so yeah, I think it just proved that he, he, his days of being a manager should now be over. Well, Max, I guess Watford's misfortune has been capitalised by Norwich, and a big week for Norwich because that's now two wins on the bounce. Dean Smith's men now find himself outside the relegation zone, which what even a month ago you would have thought unlikely. So that's not going to herald their safety or anything like that. There's still a lot of football to go, but there's a sign of momentum at Carrow Road, or at least you know within the Norwich squad. And you're sort of thinking. They're giving it a go, and all of a sudden, that sort of bottom four is being enveloped by other clubs. It's not quite cut and dry in terms of who will go down. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And I think that's really refreshing for a lot of neutral fans, because when Norwich uh, were last in the division under under Farker, I think a lot of, you know, and potentially unfairly, but at the start of the season, everyone wrote them off. And then those predictions were proved correct, because they... I think they were pretty much down by Christmas and finished bottom from what I remember. And, you know, they kind of went down with a bit of a whimper. Um, and then, yeah, as, as you say, having taken 20 games to get two wins, they've now got two in the last two, which is um, which is which is pretty great for them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, when Dean Smith came in, I think they did pretty well. They might have won their first game. Um you know that they they looked quite improved and and in Dean Smith's image and like Smith's Villa they they looked a lot more kind of resilient and hard to beat and that kind of thing and then they had a bit of a dip and I think people went oh yeah he's actually not you know going to save them and they are actually just not you know not good enough to to stay up but you know let it be said that um, they they really had a lot of injuries and COVID issues when Palace played them. To be honest, I'm, I'm surprised that game went ahead. But when Palace played them uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe two, three weeks ago, a month ago, um, they were really, really decimated and they had a real second string side out and they were, you know, really struggling to field a team. And, you know, they, they obviously had a couple of defeats on the bounce. But now it feels like they've kind of settled on their team. Um, you know, they've settled on their on their preferred lineup. Um, the, the, there are not so many kind of changes between games. And yeah, they, they just feel like a much more kind of settled side. And I think that's really good for the neutral because you don't just want a relegation uh, battle where, you know, one team is gone by the turn of the year. And it really looks like they're going to make a fight of it. And they might still, you know, go down and, and finish bottom and be, be adrift by like 10 points. But, you know, it really feels like they're giving themselves a fighting chance of staying up which was not the case under Farker. 
Yep, things are certainly getting a bit more interesting at the bottom. They're also getting interesting in the race of the top four. So let's go to Old Trafford now, because I know Matthew wanted to get something off his chest. I believe it was to do with Manchester United's dramatic winner at Old Trafford. So Matthew, the floor is very much yours. Yeah, so it's basically it's just a, a VAR technology thing. And I know one of the uh, debates that's always brought up when we talk about VAR is it's about the lines and everyone saying, oh, we shouldn't be using the millimetres and everything, you know, if his toe's offside and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, it should be daylight between the attacker and the defender. You know, we, we shouldn't have it shouldn't have to be this precise. You should be able to see from the normal replays. And now that's an argument that's been batted around. And I just want to say, I think that Manchester United's winner at the weekend probably proves why that shouldn't be the case because I was because I was watching the, I was watching the, I was watching the game uh, I was watching the game live over here it was one of the one of the few games we got um, and as I saw the winner go in I waited for the replay because I saw hang on something's not right here you can just tell with the way Cavani was in that much space you just thought something's not right here so they went to the replay and the way that the replay is done obviously it's not quite bang in line with Cavani it's had a slight tilt um, and the way it looked I was I am I was one hundred percent certain that Cavani was leaning offside, and again it was going to be a case of his you know his um his arm uh, leaned across. I can't remember who the last defender was. You know leaned across past the you know past the defender, so it was going to be a case of the shoulder being offside sort of thing. And then the replay comes through, and it looks as if he's you know a good half a yard onside because of the way it works. So I just want that to be sort of the thing. I don't want it to say you know everyone change because of what I perceive. One, you know, what I one thing I got wrong, but it's just one of those examples where I think it's it proves where VAR was you know was proved you know was proved to be right. You know, and the referee itself rather was uh, proved to be right. It was just confirming the initial decision. But it just goes to show that. All this talk about uh, offside and it means to be millimetres and you don't really... I think that really did prove that you really do because on some occasions where you think that's definitely offside, it can prove to be onside you know, in, a quite, in a quite clear fashion. So I think the lines are definitely are definitely needed, whatever. I'm sure there's going to be a VAR uh, review and uh, change at some point um, because people are still getting angry with it. But I, I want the lines to stay because I think they are a pretty good determining factor when it comes to staying on or offside. Well, Max, as always, where's the consistency? So let's cast our minds back to the Christmas period, Southampton versus Tottenham. Harry Kane had a goal ruled out. And when you look at that image, that still image, I can't see where the offside is. So how's that not given? And how is Marcus Rashford's goal allowed to stand at the weekend? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, it feels like we talk about this every week and it, you know, it does get a, a little bit... Um, a little bit frustrating, a little bit boring to a certain extent. But, you know, while the problems are still there, we're still going to be talking about them. And, yeah, I just think, you know, the the kind of the inconsistent application of, of VAR is really what frustrates fans because theoretically offside is just, uh, you know, that there's no um, subjectivity about it. Either he's offside or he's not. And, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing things where where um, where fans are still frustrated with with what's happening. Matthew, you said you watched the game. Perfect, because I'm going to ask you about United's chances. They had 18 shots during that 90 minutes, only three on target, though. So for all this talk of drama and controversy at the very, very end, really, they should have had the game long wrapped up before then. 
They, they, they absolutely should have. It, it, it just, I think, I think I may have said last week that that I do still have Manchester. I do still have Manchester United in with a shout of being in the top four because I think with with some of the fours that they have with the likes of Cavani and Ronaldo and you know his ment his mentality and all that sort of all that sort of stuff. I I just I just see them squeaking out, but. It does, again, a game like that does just show that there is still, you know, they are still lacking that killer. There is just something about them. You know, I've, there's always there, there is always something wrong with Manchester United that just makes you think that maybe they are going to. I thought maybe this this year might be the one year that they finally sort it out. But it just goes to show that if they do make the top four, they are going to be they are probably going to squeak over the line because there is. Still, there are you know, I say there's always one thing wrong. There are a couple of things wrong at Man- Manchester right now, uh, Manchester Manchester United right now. And I think if they do you know over the line, it probably will be because of the failures of the other clubs not taking advantage of their of their situation and the you know, turmoil that's going on at Old Trafford. Well, Max, one of those clubs, of course, is West Ham. Are they going to be angry with themselves for shall we say naivety in those final seconds? Because Yes, you can admire the fact they want to go win the game and try and solidify their own top four case. But in the context of a 38-game season, just getting a draw at Old Trafford is not a bad point at all. Yeah, yeah. And it's difficult because, you know, their kind of never-say-die attitude and their fearlessness and their willingness to, um, you know, be positive and proactive is part of the reason that they're up there in the first place. And, you know, at other points across the season that has resulted in them, you know, scoring goals late on, getting points and draws and wins when otherwise they they wouldn't have. But yeah, I think, as you say, maybe I'm just saying this with hindsight, but um, a point at Old Trafford against your, um, against your Champions League rivals, which would leave you above them um, in the race for European football, I think you just have to respect the point. And Declan Rice... Um, uh, in his interview after the game was saying, yeah, you know, we just switched off at the end and they and they did switch off. And that's, um, you know, you need to be switched on until the until the final whistle. Not that I as a Palace fan can be talking about late goals. But um, but yeah, they'll be a little bit frustrated because, you know, they could and maybe perhaps should have locked the game down, take the point, respect the point and, and move forward. Well, let's go to Palace next, because Max, I know you also fold a request off camera or off audio because we want to talk about a certain Liverpool penalty decision. So, Max, the floor is now very much yours. Yeah. Oh, man, I've been waiting for this all week. <laughs> it's been keeping me up at night. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. So, I mean, I'm actually I'm actually going to talk about both, two of their goals because the second one, and, you know, I'm not, I don't know if you, if you heard about this, um, but surprisingly, not a lot was made of it. But basically, Firmino was offside in the build-up to the second goal. Robertson... Crosses, if you remember the same goal, uh, Robertson crosses it for Oxlade at the back post, who puts it in. Um, when Robertson crosses it, Firmino is offside, clearly offside, um, a yard or so. And basically, Firmino goes for the header, jumps up, um, try, tries to head it, just misses it, it just kind of goes over his head, and then Oxlade is there. But let me read you. Let me read you the the actual the oh, actual FA rules. What they say about this, because I've looked it up. It says. Um, a player is offside when challenging an opponent for the ball or, and this is the key bit, clearly attempting to play a ball which is close when this action impacts on an opponent. Right, so Firmino goes for the header. He, he tries to head it, just misses it. And Mitchell, who is Palace's left back, leaves Oxlade at the back post to go and mark Firmino. So that clearly has an impact on the opponent. And then Oxlade, with Mitchell having vacated, marking him to mark Firmino, Oxlade's completely free at the back post and puts it in. It's offside. 
there's no debate about it at all. It's it's black and white. It's offside. And then, <laughs> so, I, I, you know, Palace fans already had a little bit of a grievance about that. And what's even more frustrating is that VAR checked it and decided it was still a goal. Because to be honest, I, I didn't realise, and a lot of Palace fans didn't realise watching it live, that Firmino was offside, because that isn't something you'd necessarily check. It was only kind of only came out afterwards with, with you know pictures and footage and stuff. But for VAR to check it and say that Firmino isn't impacting play by you know trying to head the ball and Mitchell leaving Oxlade unmarked at the back post to mark Firmino is staggering. <laughs> uh, and then we get onto the penalty, um, and this was widely covered by you know a lot of people and pundits and match of the day. And Gary Lineker said it's never a penalty in a million billion years, and he's dead right because it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, yeah, you know, we're told at the start of the season that referees are going to be, uh, they're not going to give as many soft penalties as last season because of how many soft penalties were given last season. We're told that contact in the box doesn't automatically equal a penalty. And Jota is going into the box and he toe pokes the ball out of play and just runs into Guaita. He runs into our goalie, elbow first, elbow into our goalie's face, and it's somehow a foul the other way. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's never a penalty. And in fact, a booking for Jota for fucking diving. Sorry, excuse my language. That's right, that's right. A, a booking for Jota for diving is a more appropriate decision than giving a penalty there. It's, I'm, I'm absolutely fuming. I'm, I'm aghast. And... The cheek of Liverpool to appeal for that penalty and the cheek of them to celebrate that when it's just blatant, 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 not a penalty. And then Klopp, the cowardice of that man to come out in the press conference and say, yeah, I thought it was a penalty. For goodness sake, just admit the truth. Like Everyone knows it. Everyone knows it's not a penalty. And he's been really outspoken about the anti-vaccination stuff. And I, I respect him for that. But for goodness sake, like, you disingenuous beggar, you know, it's, it, it's, it re it's really, really frustrating because it should never, ever, ever have been a penalty. Can you imagine if that had been given against Liverpool? Sure. He would have shot the referee on the pitch. He would have asked for an FA investigation. You know, it, it, would, <laughs> it would have been a whole thing. And, and you know, Liverpool fans and... And Liverpool manager as well, Klopp, he, he, he always has a thing when, whenever a decision goes against him, he acts like it's a whole, you know, conspiracy against Liverpool and everyone hates Liverpool and whatever. And this has just proved that, that you know, that they've been massively helped out twice. And I'm really, really not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not. But it kind of reeks of the, uh, the F1 incident when they were trying to liven up the title race by um, by giving Verstappen the... Um, a little, a little hand in in, in chasing um, in chasing Hamilton. It, I'm I'm just I'm just absolutely aghast. And you know Chelsea got a massive helping hand against Tottenham as well, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Yep. But it's just hugely hugely frustrating. And yeah, for Klopp to 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 lie openly through his teeth and and say it was a penalty, I'm I'm just I'm just stunned. Well, Matthew, I was going to mention conspiracy theories because. As Max says, I don't think we buy into that notion, but if we take what we saw on Sunday and we also take Edison wiping out Ryan Fraser in December, that wasn't even checked by VAR, let alone a penalty. It is easy to come to a conclusion that there is a conspiracy theory. You look at those two incidents and think, how on earth are the two conclusions different? Yeah, it 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 does come to the you know if there's you know if there's no smoke there's no fire. Like I always believed, I 
I always you know, used to laugh at. I remember people may remember sort of 15 years ago when English clubs were dominating European competition. It was you know, Man United, Chelsea, and Arsenal were all getting Liverpool were all getting to the Champions League finals. And people said, "Oh, there's a UEFA agenda again, you know, to try and stop this from happening." And I used to think, "Oh, that's just absolutely nonsense." And then you had that Chelsea Barcelona game at Stamford Bridge in the semi-final where uh, the uh, Tom Henning, a brave, I think it was the referee, just gave absolutely nothing. And it was a game like that. Made you think, you know what? I think they may actually have a point, and it's the same sort of thing here. Like, we don't believe in the Premier League conspiracy theory that they want to make a, an open title race or a close title race, but you do look at those things and think maybe there's again, we're not we're not absolutely defining it, you know, saying we have the proof right here that it is, but it does just give those little those little hints to make you think maybe there is some, maybe they're onto something again i still don't believe it but it gives something and can i just say a little bit of behind the scenes here we don't have our um, webcams on for when we're recording this because if anyone's ever seen me in the flesh everyone knows that's the best way to keep things um but i am i'm rather annoyed that we don't do it for the for whatever max wants to do his rants because i want to see the steam coming off his hair which i imagine <laughs> is coming out right now because max I, I i do credit you you do come across you do come across very animated in the thing in your when you have your rants i am rather annoyed that i can't see you I'm assuming there's flailing arms as well at the same time, so I'm rather annoyed I'm missing out on that. It's uh, it is it's very Alex Ferguson over here right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might need to monetize Max's rants. We could be onto something there, but Matthew, I'll stay with you because in the last few weeks we've kind of referenced Liverpool supporting cast. One player we were probably guilty of forgetting, Alex Oxley Chamberlain. Now he's really stepped up to the plate in recent times, almost a bit of resurgence. So where has he come from? I don't know. I think it may just be a case of, you know, I, I think off the top of my head, I may be wrong here, but I think isn't he into the last couple of months of his contract? I, I, think I don't even know, to be honest. May, I, I, I don't know, but he may be into the last six months or 18 months of his contract. So it is, I think he is sort of approaching that stage where they have to think, right, what are we going to do with him? Are we going to let him go or are we going to sell him on something? And given you know the injury crisis that Liverpool have gone through, you know, not only last year, but this year as well, it, there have been there have been the opportunities for him for him to step up. I think Oxford Chamber has always been... A pretty he has always been a pretty decent player and I know he was somewhat treated badly at Arsenal as well because I there was like a request he wanted to play in central midfield but Arsenal Wenger would always put him out on the wing or at number 10 or something like that. so he's always a bit miffed around at Arsenal and similar similar at Liverpool as well but now he's he's get he's getting a chance he's proving that there is a decent player in there I mean he has gone to he has gone to I think he's gone to the Euros and major championships with England so there is a play there he just had incredibly bad luck with injuries but I think it has just been a case of right I'm going to prove to my you know prove to myself maybe prove to Liverpool maybe prove to whoever you know might want to come in and sign him that there is a play there and as you said fair play to him for for stepping up and taking charge because he's always been able to do that he just had he's just rarely been given the chance and Max, in terms of Palace, controversy aside, it's now one win in the last six league outings. Is there any cause of concern at the moment? You're 13th at the table at the time of recording, but only two points off a tenth. So you're in that fluid bracket of mid-table where the picture doesn't really tell the full story. So any alarm bells ringing in South London? Um, I don't. I don't think so. You know, our performances have been good enough to 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 be getting better results than than we have been. And ultimately, you know, I have been saying this for a while now, but over the course of the season you know you pretty much will get what you deserve and i think we will um we will we will start getting um start getting the results if we carry on playing the way we are obviously zaha and kiyate are away 
their two key players. Ayu has just come back now, came on as a sub against Liverpool, but he was gone to AFCON as well. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I, James MacArthur's a, a bit of a, a loss in the midfield as well. I don't want to make excuses, but um, yeah, I, the performances have been there. On another day, we could have easily drawn or beaten Liverpool. You know, we missed three or four really big chances. Alisson made three or four really good saves. He was man of the match, which kind of tells you everything. So yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not worried at all, really. Um, and you know what? Um, just very <laughs> quickly on the on the on the controversy. Um, an interesting thing that I noted is that Craig Pawson was the VAR. And Pawson was the official who did not give uh, Fraser the penalty for no. Fraser being wiped out by Edison. And I think there's a little bit of he got slated afterwards for not giving that because it was a penalty. And it's a similar-ish kind of incident in terms of attacker, you know, making contact with goalkeeper. And I think maybe um, that that previous one has played on his mind and he's kind of gone too far the other way to, to overcompensate. Obviously, that's a ridiculous decision because you need to assess each uh, incident on its merits. But maybe that maybe that had a little bit of an effect there. Do you know what? That's a great point. I didn't even know that. Yeah, subconscious bias with referees, if they miss a clanger and then have to sort of level up, you do sort of think that that's always been a thing, isn't it? And I think now knowing that information, there's always that danger of sort of going the wrong way or too far in the other direction because you can't be seen to be sort of that man who's not giving two Stonewall penalties in a row. So you kind of think, oh, okay, yep, I've got to give this one. So yeah, as you say, each action should be taken on merit as its own thing in isolation. But when you kind of compare two and think, oh, actually, yeah, I remember a month ago, better press that button. It's not fair on the teams that then get punished thereafter. But Tottenham, is it fair that they got a goal disallowed on Sunday? I mean, from a Tottenham fan point of view, I look at it and I think there's definitely contact. You can't make any doubt about that. Matthew, has Thiago Silva used his while and experience to sort of think, OK, I know exactly what I'm doing here. I'm going to go to grounds. With that said, is it enough to get the goal chalked off? Yeah, I think it's one of these situations we have it with, you know, generic tackles and everything, whatever, whenever there's um, an incident in the box. He's made the most of it. I think it, there is certainly contact. There is certainly, you know, a bit of a push away from Harry Kane. But is there enough for him to go down in that situation? I don't th- I don't think there is. And I, th- I think as Thiago Silva has bought it in the, sit- in the situation. You know, you know, you know, we allow a little bit of contact, you know, a little bit of, you know, shoulder barging and stuff, a little bit of physicality when it comes to incidents like like that, but you know, he's obviously tried to pull it away, you know, push it away into oh, it's more dramatic than 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 absent than it was. So yeah, I think that's where I, I don't say experience comes into it because Harry Kane's twenty eight himself, I want to say. So he should he should he's been around the blocks enough to know that you know he's experienced himself. So it's not someone taking advantage of you know an up and comer in the game. Um, but yeah, I think Thiago Silva has used his experience there to sort of. Uh, not con the referee, but again, just play play the situation to its advantage. Okay, then, Max, let's look at it from the other direction, if it were to happen. If Thiago Silva puts that same hand on Harry Kane's back and Harry Kane goes to ground, is the referee waving him up and telling him, don't be silly, that's never a penalty, or is he pointing to the spot? That's, that's a really interesting question, actually. Um, it's interesting that you flipped it. I don't think it was a foul on Silva, and I think if had it been the other way around, I don't think it's enough for a penalty. But I reckon that would have got given as a penalty. Maybe because it's maybe because it's Kane and and he, he I hope you don't mind me saying he tends to get the rub of the green with kind of 50-50 calls. Um, but yeah, I, I 
I reckon that would have been given as a penalty. But for me, there's not enough contact in it for it to be a foul. You know, whoever initiates the contact, whether that's the defender or the attacker, that's just incidental contact. It's part of the game. Um, and Thiago is obviously a very smart, a very intelligent, very experienced, wily defender. And he's kind of felt that slight contact and, you know, he's kind of used it to his advantage. And, and obviously it's a kind of goal saving decision but I think it was it was quite cynical there wasn't enough in it for me and were I a Spurs fan I would have been I'd been really frustrated you still might have lost that game and I think you probably still would have considering how you set up it was a little bit strange with that 4-4-2 and and you didn't play brilliantly um so you know I think you may well still have lost but yeah I, I wouldn't have disallowed it okay Matthew let's add another element to this VAR let's say that. In the other circumstance of Silver pushing Kane and a penalty was given, would that be enough of a clear and obvious error for it to be overturned? That's what I thought you were going. That's what I thought you were going. Uh, well, that's not where I thought you were going with this. In that situation, no, I don't think there would be enough again to again to overturn it. I think that's. I think that's always the situation. I think that's what we we've sort of talked about with VAR in 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 the past. Is that as as many times as it is, it's what the initial decision is is you know as crucial as what the as what the outcome is because again it's got to be enough to overturn. So in that situation, if it had been the same you know exact same amount of force and what have you um, from Silver, I think if the referee gave the penalty, I don't think there's enough to overturn it. But at the same time, if he just waves it away and you know they come back a couple of minutes later, then I don't think there's enough to overturn it either that way as well. So I think that's one of those whatever the initial decision was probably plays a big part in what the you know what the final outcome would be. And Max, you mentioned Tottenham's formation. I mean on paper it's four four two, but really it was six two two. Is this a rare occasion where Conte got it wrong? I think so. Um and I said before the game, because I mean, you know, looking at the team and the players, I thought, oh, you know, maybe like Sessignon will be left wing or something and and Doherty might be left wing back. I didn't really know what was going on, but yeah, I mean, to drop his first choice wing backs and the system that he's played for ages with a lot of success. You know, he was unbeaten in the league before that, before that game. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I just think he got it wrong again. Um, against Chelsea in the in the League Cup, he got it wrong picking Gallini, in my opinion. I said that before the game, so that's not with hindsight. I said, a bit weird picking Gallini in goal. Then he obviously makes a mistake um, from which Chelsea score. Um, and yeah, I, I, th- I just think he got this one wrong. I just think he got this one wrong. Um, you know, Chelsea have been in not brilliant form. They've got a couple of absences. Lukaku's not really been doing the business. Obviously, Mendy's not in goal. I thought Kepa's did okay, but he's not in the class of Mendy, uh, in my opinion. So I think it was actually a really good opportunity to try and get a result off Chelsea. You know, Brighton drew with Chelsea and they could have won that game. Um, and I think it's a really good time to play Chelsea. And Tottenham's kind of retreated into their shell and just battened down the hatches. And, you know, against a team in the class of Chelsea, if you just park the bus, you're likely to lose. So I, I think he did get that one wrong. But, you know, Tottenham is still in a very good position when it comes to uh, the race for the European places because they've got all the games in hand. Well, I'll stay with you, Max, because you are right that it doesn't massively dent Tottenham's top four hopes. You know, it's still a going concern. But are they now operating as flat track bullies that they can't really land a punch on any of the top six rivals and they're all like rolling over teams in the mid to bottom table brackets of the Premier League at the moment but that's only going to get you so far that's only going to really take you to top six top seven and not a top four team 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, interestingly, Kane's kind of been criticised as a flat track bully, which I don't think is fair because he does score his fair share against the big teams. But yeah, um, maybe the, the the striker and the and the team kind of reflect each other a little bit there. Yeah, I mean, Tottenham do tend to do pretty well against the the smaller teams, which obviously you do need because you know City tend to do really well against the teams at the top, and then you know we'll slip up against Palace, which um, I, I just had to mention. Nicely again. done, nicely done. And I will do next week. <laughs> Um, but but yeah, um, I think that's really what what Conte's been brought in for because Tottenham have the players to to beat you know the smaller teams most of the time. And where Conte will help is that he has that experience at the really really top level um, in you know big games. And he didn't get a right against Chelsea, but generally you'd say he's a better option than for example Nuno, who, who does not have that kind of interest in the big games. And hopefully. Conte is just kind of still working out his his preferred team, you know, who he wants in, who he wants to get rid of. And, he, he you know, he hasn't had much time there and he's already had a pretty tangible impact on Tottenham's um, on Tottenham's success. And I think you could well get um, one of the European slots this year, the Europa League, if not the Champions League. And I think, yeah, Conte, Conte will help with that. Now, Matthew, in terms of Chelsea, as Max alluded to, they weren't in great form coming into Sunday and Tottenham will feel disappointed they didn't at least get a draw from that in terms of the sort of circumstance they found themselves in. However, that win for Thomas Tuchel is going to ease a lot of pressure off of his shoulders. Quite weirdly, there's already talk of him being in the sort of beginning of the end of his time at Stamford Bridge. Is that a fair statement to make? Just like how Watford managers are always under pressure, is this just Chelsea being Chelsea that, you know, if you're not quite at the highest heights the knife is always going to be sharp regardless. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. I think, I think you summed up perfectly. If you're not at the highest heights and not doing exactly what Roman Abramovich wants, you know, look at look at Di Matteo. Was it six months after he won the Champions League? He was out of a job because of, you know, failings elsewhere. Villas-Boas was sacked um, partway through, partway through I think it was his first season um, because he wasn't, because he was doing his work. So we know what, we know what Chelsea are like. So if you're not performing at the peak, um, then yeah, he's always done the. Th- I think he probably does have a little bit of a little bit of leeway because whilst the you know the title race may look as if it's out of sight, because if Man City win their game in hand, they'll be thirteen points clear. You still think that you know he's he proved last year that he can get them through the Champions League, so you'd imagine maybe that's what's giving him some sort of uh, leverage leverage right now. Um, so you know that may, that may be the one th- that may be the one thing keeping uh, keeping him in his job. So yeah, I'm not. I I wouldn't be surprised if. You know, yeah. If you know they get if they get bounced out of the Champions League right in the round in the round sixteen, I wouldn't be surprised if he was if he was gone because again this is how Chelsea operate. But at the same time, I think he's probably had the right to stick through at least till the end of the season. Yeah, I think he's certainly got enough credit for last season's Champions League win. And as you say, he could win two on the bounce. So I think it'd be a bit too hasty to uh, discuss his sacking just yet. But Matthew, I'll stay with you now because we're going to go to Goodison Park. I'm going to ask a simple question: Are Everton in a genuine relegation battle? Uh, genuinely, I think I think they are because you because even though they they do have some nice players, you know the the really the, you know, the players that they have really should be doing should be doing a lot better than what they are. And you know you look at the managers that they've had, you know Rafael Benitez for instance should not have got them should not have got them down this far. I think part of that is probably due to the uh, the toxicity and the animosity within the fan base. He's probably always had that little bit of you know fear about him. You know, or had that fear about him before he left 
which obviously made it, which probably made its way down to the side. And you look at who the the managerial candidates are right now. Wayne Rooney's being mentioned. Would you trust him to sort out to sort out Everton the situation they are? Probably not. Frank Lampard slightly better than Rooney, but in the same thing, probably not. Duncan Ferguson as temporary, no. Vita Pereira has been has been mentioned, no. I mean, he's got experience, but he's bounced around a lot, so. Whether or not his his heart would really ever be in it is, is hard. So yeah, I do think Everton, unless they get the you know the right manager sorted out soon and someone who can take them away from the relegation zone as soon as possible, this 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 is not a call for Sam Allardyce. We know how that was worked out in the past. Uh, but unless they get themselves a manager quickly to get them that first you know ten points out of possible fifteen, say, and just push them further up the table, then I think relegation is genuinely a threat for them. Max, we didn't speak last week when the Everton news broke, so I'd be interested to get your take on who the successor to Rafa Benitez should and will be. Oh, that's a tricky question. Um, yeah, you know what? It's tricky, right? Because Rooney's obviously got the the emotional connection there, and he's actually done a pretty underrated job at Derby, um, considering the absolute mess that club is. He's done fantastically well. Um, to, to kind of steer them to within, you know, some semblance of potentially staying up despite their massive um, points deduction. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure that he has maybe the the, the the real experience yet, but yeah, maybe it would be a little bit... So I have a theory, right, where um, clubs and teams... Um, not just in football, in rugby as well. They tend to veer from one kind of manager to the opposite type of manager to the opposite type of manager. Um, so, you know, Palace, for example, went from De Boer to Hodgson back to Vieira. And obviously those are kind of got very contrasting styles of play and that kind of thing. And I think, although Benitez is a good manager, did a fantastic job at Newcastle, um, but was very and, and you know very experienced, but did was really really not liked by the Everton fans, and it was it turned very very toxic. Um, you know, not even just towards the end, but like for, for for a month or two before, and you know some of the fat Spanish waiter chants and stuff, which I found pretty distasteful. Um, yeah, you know, basically Everton fans really 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 did not like him kind of partly because of his little club comments in the past and partly because of his Liverpool connection obviously. Um it's it's very very much a possibility that Everton will go to the other side completely which is to go for someone who is ex- inexperienced and young for a manager but has a fantastic you know, relationship with the fans and has a real place in the Everton hearts. And even if things are going badly and even if results are similar to under Benitez, they'll forgive him because, you know, they feel that Rooney has that club connection. So I think it's very possible they could go to Rooney. Would it work out? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't think it would be, um, I don't think it would be massively successful, but you know, if they, if they give him time and backing, um, kind of both financially and and for him to do things his way, you know, it, 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 he has the potential to to do quite well there. Um, but but yeah, it's, it's it's a very tricky one. I can't see anyone like Matthew said who's going to go in and make an instant impact. I don't reckon that they're going to be in a real relegation battle. But then you know they might be if they don't get someone good in. 
and, and, and things don't pick up. But Calvert-Lewin's back now, which will, which will make a big difference to them. Well, I think with Everton, their mindset has been this season, don't worry, there's always going to be three worse clubs than us. But you look at them at the moment, and arguably, well, on form, they are one of the worst three clubs at the moment. So they can't rely on that. Their next appointment is going to be massive. And Matthew, last week we spoke about Rafa going and the optics of that protest at Norwich and the fan running on the pitch. That didn't look good. Now you've got Fahad Mashiri boosting up his stakeholding the club to 94%. There's protests about him after the game on Saturday. There's going to be a lot of placating that needs to take place at Goodison Park. There is, and I think it's a situation. I think it's a lot similar to Newcastle, to Newcastle United, where you know for years it was always a case. You know, for a couple of years it was always, you know, we want Pardew. You know, Pardew was always the the main figure for the age, and then as soon as he went, then it became significant, and it sort of started around. You know, all, all the time. You know, all the time it was always Mike Ashley. There was a problem. I think it's pretty much the same at, at Everton now. I think they've sort of run out of. Uh, run out of figures to blame, so so sort of tweet. Maybe it's machine. Maybe it's the owner's fault for doing all this. And you know, yeah, he, he he can get some blame. I think you know, Parvi is at least you know you can't accuse him of not being of not funding the club. At least you know whether he's funded it in the right way um, or brought in the right players is you know or the wrong players is a different matter. But at least you can you can say he's at least he's at least tried, um, in a sense. So yeah, I think. It is just a case of you know there, there is a lot wrong at Everton and you you could probably put Mashiri as as the figurehead for the whole thing. So you know I you know whether or not this leads to you know him yeah you know, he's, he's just bought more stake in the club. So I don't think he's in a position to sell anymore. But maybe it, it forces him into into some sort of change where he gets the people you know he gets different uh, people underneath him to change how they're doing things now they're working the club because it's clear to see you know Everton are a big are a big club and they are making. Um, progressive moves and ambitious moves, like with the move to the new stadium in the future. So they, you know, they do they do have big ideas. It's just they're not executing them quite the way they should. So there definitely does need to be some sort of changes when it comes to the hierarchy. Goodison some bark. You just hope sooner rather than later. And Max, the best thing about football is that it writes some brilliant subplots from time to time, and you won't get many better than Luca Dean returning to his former club and getting the winner against Everton. Now the scenes were a bit unsavoury afterwards, but that's a great goal from the French international. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and <clears throat> I mean, it, it just kind of shows the the mixed up thinking at, um, at Everton that basically Dinia, who is one of you know you'd say probably is one of their star players, obviously signed from Barcelona, has done really well for them. Great set piece taker, great left foot, you know, provided a lot of assists uh, in his time there. Essentially, left the club because of a row with Benitez. And then Benitez goes like a week later and Everton are without their, their star player. And Mikolenko is who they've kind of signed to replace him. And they've made a profit, you know, on that deal. But Mikolenko is a decent prospect, but he's young. He's unproven. They haven't got a backup left back. I mean, Godfrey can play there, but he's not a natural left back. And, you know, they're going to be relying on, on Mikolenko now to, um, to, to, to fill Dina's boots. And it's going to be a tough job for him. Matthew, I know this is going to be of absolutely no concern to you, but will Hounslow Town have to start looking over their shoulders in terms of the relegation battle? Thomas Frank's got a new contract, but do you get the feeling he's going to have to start earning that extension in the second half of this campaign? I don't. I don't think they're going to. I don't think they're going to be too concerned. I think in in for, for a combination of there will be three more. There will be three teams worse than them. I think that's probably that's probably the safest bit uh, to get rid of. And also, I 
I think similar similar to Leeds, but not direct comparison to Leeds from last season. I think their style of play just does enough to, to get them through. You know, they will. You know, there will be a few blips here and there, but for the most part, they will beat up on the on the teams that are around. They will get a few. They will get a few decent results, like they did against Arsenal um, in the opening weekend of the season. So I I don't expect there to be many worries on their behalf. As much as, 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 as much of it does pay me to say that. <laughs> now, Max, drone stops play. I think that's a new one for us all. Do you think that's enough of a security risk to take players off the field? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it's kind of easy to say, oh, well, you know, um, <clears throat> it's just ridiculous. The match should carry on regardless. I, I, I don't have a problem with that, with that decision because, I mean, it, the drone was kind of flying around and obviously stopped above the stadium, so it was malicious. It turned out to be pretty harmless, but... You just don't know. You just don't know. And, you know, the world being the way it is, it's, you know, very divided, loads of, like, wars going on and stuff. Um, yeah, you you just really never know what, what might actually be a credible terrorist threat. So although eventually it kind of turned out to be pretty pretty harmless i think i think it's fine to i think it's fine to take them off those are the rules and you know imagine how bad we felt if we'd have just kind of poo-pooed it and said oh no you know let's carry on and then you know some, something bad happened the the uh, the um the health of the players is, is the most and fans is the most important thing um and i was actually live blogging that game and it, i was just you know kind of half hoping for a nice quiet relaxing <laughs> simple game and then you know there was the, the players clash heads and then it stopped and then the drone stuff happened and yeah it was it was <laughs> it was a bit silly and seeing 19 minutes of um first half stoppage time was was you know something new for me which is rare in football <laughs> what time did that finish up then uh, i think the first half was like 72 minutes in or something 70 minutes in Bloody hell. Absolutely <laughs> yeah but again as you say safe is better than sorry, isn't it? I think, you know, the repercussions of something, it doesn't even bear thinking about. So, although it is bizarre, I think you have to just get players back in and then just wait till it's safe. Hopefully, we don't see some knobhead with a copycat drone somewhere this week or, do you know what I mean? It's just, you don't need that. It's been done now. So, no more drones if you're listening. But, Matthew, a big win for Newcastle last weekend in their own bid to stay up. However, should Ian Maye have done much better after John Joe Shelby's free kick? Yeah, I think that's definitely one that you put you put some blame on the goalkeeper. I know he's tried to make he tried to make the case, and I th- I, I don't know if there was a VAR check in the highlights that I managed to gather, but there was. Um, yeah, there was of course. Yeah, there was a case of, of the Newcastle player being offside, right. impeding vision, and that sort of. Thing. You can you can make the you can make the argument, you can see the argument, but I I think it's a bit I think it's a bit weak. I think that's one that Melier again he will probably want to put back, which is a bit of a shame because I think Melier does have the. Does have the potential, I think, with with some of the safety pulls off and with his work is he does have the potential to, you know, I don't think he'd look out of place to be brutally honest at one of the bigger clubs like Man United or Man City or Liverpool or any of or any of those lots. I do think he yeah, does have a lot of potential, but that is certainly one where you know he's still young, so he, he probably will uh, hopefully learn from that mistake and not make it happen again. And Max, the Man City juggernaut has slowed ever so slightly. What do you make of Pep's comments? On match of the day, he's getting a bit angsty all of a sudden. Asked about the title race and was a little bit just pet being pet when things don't go quite right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, him and and Klopp as well, to be fair, and Tuchel. You can say about you can say about all of them. They just seem to get a little bit kind of testy and and weird if they <clears throat> if they don't end up getting a result. But yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was quite an interesting way of doing it because obviously he's kind of his manner was a bit strange, but um, 
and and the kind of the way he was saying it. But I guess you have to be quite intense and obsessive and uh, you know to be a successful manager um, in this day and age. But yeah, I thought it was actually quite interesting because um, normally a manager would kind of dig out his players after drawing one one against lower mid table Southampton, but it, it kind of takes the pressure off the players really and. He, you know, other managers, for example, Klopp or, say, Solskjaer used to do it a lot at United. He would kind of blame the referee for something if they didn't get a result. And it's nice to see Guardiola not doing that and kind of taking all pressure off his players for their kind of underperformance. Because although they did have a lot of the ball and on another day could have easily won, they, you know, they weren't great <clears throat> against Southampton. I think Southampton probably deserved the draw. Um but the way that he kind of takes the pressure off his players is by making it about him rather than making it about the referees. So I think it's kind of an interesting bit of of mind games or, you know, maybe kidology from Guardiola. But yeah, it was, it was a bit strange to watch, wasn't it? Now, Matthew, Brighton earned a solid point against Leicester. You almost look at that and think maybe Brighton are going to be disappointed by not getting all three points. They've only won, I think it's, what, six games all season, but they've only lost four. They are the draw specialists right now. Is this just a stature of where they are at the moment, that things are going so well down at the South Coast? Yeah, I think it's, it's probably something that, you know, if they were if they were higher up the table then you know, and challenging for Europe, then they might be a little bit more concerned. If they were fighting against relegation, then they might be a bit more concerned. But I think this is just going to be a season of stability. Well, I think most seasons for Brighton are going to be just a season of stability. I think so long as they're not fighting for anything drastically, then they, they should be OK. Again, a draw against Leicester, who are... You know, who despite their problems are still still a pretty decent side on you know and have decent players on that day. Um, I don't I don't think anything to you know drastically be concerned about uh, for Grand Potter's men at least at this stage anyway. And Max, finally, Burnley won't be disappointed with a draw away at Arsenal, but in a weekend where their rivals around them are winning, things aren't getting any easier for Sean Dyche and his players. Um, no, but as you say, I think in the context of it being their first game back for ages and ages and it being against a pretty strong, albeit kind of weakened because of COVID and, and squad departures, Arsenal, I think I think a draw is, is really good for them because, you know, their, their relegation rivals aren't going to be winning every week. So you just have to take the point where you can get it. And yeah, I, th- I mean, you know, considering both their first choice fullbacks were out, um, you know, obviously Wood has gone, Corne's at AFCON. I think it was. I think it was a pretty good result for them. Well, they're playing Norwich next Saturday. I think it's been rescheduled, hasn't it? They obviously not in cup action, so that's going to be a day. I think it's probably six points of territory. If Burnley can win that, use one of their games in hand, then the picture looks a little bit rosier. If they don't, then we might have to have a serious discussion about their relegation out the Premier League. But that is to come. So I think we've hit full time. Now there's a winter break. This week, no one told us about that, so I don't know what we're going to do next week. We'll think of something to keep the shareholders happy. I'll worry about that, but I just need to do the admin, which is as simple as thanking my two pod squad members. So Max, a sterling effort as always. Thank you for your time this afternoon. Yeah, nice one. Good to be back. And Matthew, thanks for wearing the captain's armband this week. A pleasure to chat to you once more. Yeah, pleasure as always. Same next week. Absolutely right. Cheers, guys, and also to the listeners out there. And with that said, it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy. This is the Real Football Cast, and until next time, goodbye.
podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.